podcast dedicated to helping college students with mental health issues set and achieve goals for themselves to get them where they want to be. I'm your host, Derek Malinzak, and this is episode 64 of the podcast. And I have an excellent one for you today. And it will be quite a bit different than the last two interviews I have brought you. Um, the person I'm going to be interviewing today, his name is Jack Spierko, and he runs the Survival Podcast. And just before I get into the podcast, because I'm not, I mean, in, into the interview, because I'm not going to talk long here. The interview went quite long. Um, just some background as to how I came to discover Jack. I, um, I found him uh, on iTunes. I was looking through podcasts one day in their podcast directory, and I think I had searched either uh, survival or I think I searched survival. Um, it was just always sort of an interest of mine. I, I had watched that show, um, Doomsday Preppers, <laughs> um, when it first came on about, I don't know, eight years ago, nine, ten years ago. And, you know, it intrigued me because I, I never really thought that way. And it actually scared me a little, like, uh, you know, the things that could happen to the world. And I, I found his podcast, and when I found it, I remember not really thinking about this, but kind of now looking back, I, I was kind of scared, you know, about about the world around me, and I, and I really didn't know how to think about it and conceptualize it and, you know, plan in a way that was going to make sense. You know, a lot of these doomsday preppers, if you haven't heard the show, it's these guys that make these really elaborate bunkers and fallout shelters because they're worried about nuclear war or um, global pandemics or you know, financial collapse and, you know, they, the show really, um, kind of made these people out to look like, uh, you know, whack jobs, sorry to say. Um, and, you know, it gave this thought that that's what all, you know, kind of preppers were like. Um, but when you listen to his show and, and, and it's not for everybody, you know, not everybody's into that kind of thing, but I'll tell you why it's helped me. Uh, I found his show, I remember it, it's April of 2014, so it's going on three years now. Um, and the thing that, the number one thing that he has helped me with is a way, developing a way to think critically. I ha- no longer have any fear. Um, you know, I'm not totally prepared for what's going to happen in the future, but I know what I think and I know what I believe in and I see, you know, my potential and, you know, I am not worried, you know, uh, and he has given me that. He's helped me kind of develop a sense of, you know, who I am. And, um, you know, it's, I can't even tell you how much of an effect it's been on me. Uh, I feel like a different person, you know, from three years ago before I started listening to him. So, you know, I hope, I hate to blow him up and, and make it sound like this amazing thing that's going to change your life. I know it's not going to for everybody, but I just kind of want to, you know, tell people where I'm coming from and to why this interview was so important to me. I worked on getting this interview for about a year as well. I had kind of gone back and forth with Jack in February of last year, and then it just didn't happen. He's a super busy guy. And I stuck with it and, you know, kept in touch and, uh, you know, reached out to him right before the end of the year and didn't hear back. And then he reached out to me about a month later and was like, hey, I was, you know, still want to do that podcast? And I was like, yes. So I'm, I'm really grateful. Thanks again, Jack, for, for coming on the show. And uh, take it away, Derek and Jack. 
All right. I am here today with Jack Spierko of the Survivor po- Survival Podcast, and I just want to thank you and uh, welcome to the show, Jack. Hey, man. I'm glad to be here with you. I really like what you're doing. Thanks. Appreciate it. So as you like to do with a lot of your interviews, I, I wanted to ask you if you could uh, maybe talk about where you came from and how you got to where you are as a podcaster and uh, maybe just talk a little bit about your wonky path uh, so the audience can kind of hear your background if they're not familiar with you. So when I when I ask that question on my show, as you know, I, I usually say something like, take us back to 11th grade and picking your nose in study hall or something like that, you know, to, to lighten the mood. So I'll, <laughs> I'll take the approach as though you put it to me that way. And, uh, you know, so by the time I was in, you know, my, my junior year of high school, I, I had pretty much decided that I didn't know what I was going to do, but I was pretty much done with, with school from a standpoint, uh, and, and I was going to stay there and, and get through it. And um, uh, midway through my senior year, uh, I, I had taken the ASVAP test the year prior to get out of class um, and was contacted by a military recruiter and uh, started investigating joining the Army. And uh, it was February of my uh, senior year. I, I, I officially signed up for the military to leave after school ended. And that gave me some real impetus to go ahead and, and make sure I graduated because that was kind of a prerequisite. So I got through school and I was the kind of student that like if I liked the class, I got an A in it. If I didn't like it, I got like a, a C minus in it or a, maybe maybe even a D if I didn't really think it was important to me. Uh, but I would pass it. You know, I would do whatever I needed to do to pass it. I was a smart kid, but bored by the standard educational paradigm and uh, joined the military to uh, to see the world. And, and uh, on August 2nd, 1990 was my 18th birthday. And on that day, Iraq invaded Kuwait, and I had already enlisted and was like, well, I guess that's kind of symbolic. So I had a short trip over to the desert, ended up permanently stationed in Panama uh, after completing airborne school, served with the Army Airborne until uh, for, for about three total years, and uh, my enlistment ended. And much like school, in fact, I would say I had more affinity for the Army. Like, this was great, but I'm done now. Uh, so came home, uh, went back to the little coal town I was raised in. And thought, all my friends are different. And about two weeks into it, I realized, no, my friends are the same. Uh, you're different. And, and this just doesn't work anymore. Uh, and I need to figure out what the heck I'm going to do with myself. So now I'm, you know, I'm 21 years old. Joined the Army at 17, you know. And uh, you're still so young at 21. But I'd been, you know, to different parts of the world and seen things. And like, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I had done the GI Bill and college fund thing in the Army, so I could have went to college then, but I didn't really want to. So I decided to take a walk. So I got on a trail in Pennsylvania called the Appalachian Trail, and I walked it all the way to uh, New Hampshire. I didn't walk it to the end, and I didn't through hike it, but I hiked uh, well over 1,000 miles of that trail over about a three-month period of time, taking my time, uh, staying in different places, and just kind of finding myself. Came back to uh, to my little you know, my father's home in rural Pennsylvania, uh, bought a $400 car, packed all my crap into it and, and drove to Texas where a friend of mine, uh, from the army had settled down and said, why don't you come down here? I could use a roommate to help pay the rent. And, uh, car broke down the day I got here and, uh, I'm seriously on the highway, like 12 miles from where his house was on LBJ expressway with like six lanes of traffic and people honking at me as I pushed my car uphill. Um, like don't honk. I, th- I thought Texas was friendly. Don't honk. Hell. What a so welcome. Just, and, uh, I spent about like the first six months not really doing much useful at all. I was on unemployment still, 
and uh, there was a bar I could walk to, and I, I finally got my car fixed and got a job in telemarketing for like six bucks an hour, and then I got a job in uh, pack- packing boxes in a warehouse, and I got a big race to you know, like six dollars and ninety cents an hour, and uh, eventually found it uh, my way into uh, to actual telecommunications uh, through pulling cable. I got my first big job, you know, paying like twelve bucks an hour and some per diem to travel. Worked for MCI, uh, traveled all over Southern Texas. Uh, eventually from there moved into outside plant telecommunications. So we were putting in like the fiber optic cables when they were first rolling out major internet launches and things like that throughout Dallas, Fort Worth with directional boring equipment, moved all the way to a point where I was basically a superintendent of a construction company, uh, helped the owner build. I'm at this point, I'm like 25 years old, 24 years old, Mm -hmm. helped the, the owner of that company, built that company up to a really great company. Subcontractors don't get paid for a while. Everybody's breathing down my neck, wanting to kill me. There's all these big giant guys that were construction for a living that are, you know, 40 years old that want to kill this young kid. And one day I showed up at the office and everything was gone. And the owner skipped town with uh, all the money he owed them. Wow. And uh, so I disappeared <laughs> from that group. Like I, I'm not taking the, the fall on this. And uh, managed to get a job in sales. And uh, my my first year that I made over a hundred thousand dollars was that year, and I was by that point I was twenty six years old, and uh, at that point I, I had started to think about well maybe I need to go go back and revisit this educational paradigm and maybe I should you know go to college and then went well then what what am I going to get beyond what I have and maybe I should pursue this uh, further started looking for other opportunities ended up being the regional uh, sales VP of a company called Fluke Networks. Uh, they're a $500 million a year global company and, uh, ended up being their number one sales, uh, sales, uh, VP, uh, for three years straight and eventually decided that was making me miserable. So in spite of everything I did to get that far, I ended up leaving that, uh, by that we had moved back to Pennsylvania. We moved my family all the way back down to Texas and I made a shift into the world of marketing. And during the time that I had been working for Fluke, it was the middle of the tech bust so I'm in a high tech company carrying a sales quota in the middle of a technology depression, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I had started to play around with this internet thing and built some little fun sites and stuff like that, just on stuff that interested me. And so I'm trying to develop sales leads. So I start developing these little micro sites that design, are designed to get people to come sit through seminars where we teach about test equipment. And uh, I had actually become very successful in Fluke because of that and said, well, maybe I could do some stuff like this for myself. And I had started building like affiliate sites and stuff like that. And I was making some money on it, making money on Google advertising and stuff like that. And I thought, I, I really want to get, I want to become an expert in this. I, I don't just want to dabble and learn what I can online. I want to be surrounded by people um, like myself. So I applied for a position as a search engine marketing specialist with a firm in, in Dallas called Masterlink. And I went from making a very, very substantial six-figure income to making $45,000 a year to make that move. And... In a year's time, I ended up leaving that company because I feel like I sucked every bit of knowledge out of it I could. I went to work for a company called Sage Telecom, and I made a really decent salary again. And um, I was there like a month, and the company's being bought out. And if you've ever seen the movie Office Space, we referred to the two consultants that were overseeing the buyout as the Bobs. <laughs> and uh, I'm like, I don't, I don't want to do this. And I had made a lot of friends and clients and things when I had worked for Masterlink. One was a gentleman named Neil Franklin. I know this is getting long, but it's no problem. It's, it's kind of ended up here, right? So yeah, yeah. this Neil Franklin had it was the only only person in 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 the world that's ever won the Branson Award for entrepreneurship two years in a row. 
uh, twice, period, but he also won it two years in a row. He had several companies. He had moved here to the United States because he got tired of the tax burden in the UK. And he had been a client of mine and become a friend. So when the Bobs showed up at Sage, I said, hey, man, I'm looking for something. Do you, do you know what's available? He's like, come over here. I'll make you a partner. <laughs> really? Yeah. Was, okay. I'm, so we started talking. I said, why do, you, why do you want to move this fast? He said, when I came to Masterlink and, and you were just like a, a, an entry-level employee, basically, as far as the way they were treating you, the way you handled everything, when they couldn't make me happy, I thought you owned the company. Okay, say more things like that. So we spent about four years working together. We founded a company. We actually had, and I'm not responsible either way for Trump being president, but uh, we had a company that uh, we founded that was a consultant to Donald Trump. Uh, and we actually got that account by completely tearing apart his blog online on our blog and saying how bad it sucked. And they came to us and said, you sound like you know what you're talking about. Can you make it better? So we, we had this very untraditional way of, of doing uh, marketing, but even with that, and even having an ownership stake, and it, I was still an employee, and I was still, and at this point, now I'm dealing with you know one company, and we had three companies within this holding company, and in one company I'm dealing with 50 employees and thousands of contractors all over the world, and I'm dealing all of a sudden I'm dealing with all of this crap that I didn't know existed, like how much work goes into just making sure everybody's health insurance is is there. You know, and this is before uh, the Unaffordable Care Act. This is you know th- when it was good and it was terrible. And uh, I, I started to become more and more miserable. I've started putting more and more weight on. We're doing all this client entertainment, stuff like that. And I got a client for our media company that wanted a podcast. And uh, so I, we put a bid in on the job. We won the job. I bring it to my web guy. He says, I can do all of this, but I don't know how to do the, the podcast feed integration thing, which you know is not hard. But I'm like, well, I'll figure it out. Just, just build the site, do everything else to the spec. And so I climbed into my car in 2008 with a uh, $15 MP3 recorder and a headset and I did an episode one of the uh, survival podcast to learn how to do podcasts. And when I got home that night, I didn't want to punch a hole in the wall. <laughs> and I said, I, I think I'm going to enjoy this. So I started, so I did a podcast a day, every weekday in my car on my way to work for a year and a half. And at the end of that year and a half, I looked at the revenue coming out of the podcast. And I said, why are, why are you making yourself miserable anymore? So I, I went to my, my partner and there was a couple other unnamed silent partners and said, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm done. And uh, they asked me to serve as their uh, COO of uh, one of the companies that was on a wrong track uh, for six months and said, will you do this for us before you leave? I did that. And then in in January of that year, I walked away and uh, never looked back and started building the show. And we went from, you know, our first six months when I was doing it part time, 2000 listeners built up by the end of the first year in a six month period. And today, the show's listened to by about 150,000 people a day. That's so I know that's long. That's a that's a wonky path, but trust me, I shortened it. Yes, yeah. it's truly wonky. <laughs> um, and I will definitely include a link to your podcast in the show notes if anyone's interested in listening and becoming 150,001. Um, so a couple of things there. First off, I don't know how the hell you did a podcast a day you know, five days a week while working. I could barely manage one while working and going to school, but uh, kudos to you for that. Um, maybe we'll talk. Let, a let me answer bit. that real quick because yeah. it actually wasn't that hard. You just have to accept the fact that there's 24 hours in a day, and it's up to you how many of you how many of them you use. And I was getting up about three thirty, four o'clock in the morning. I would put together an outline. Now remember, I was because of all that stuff I just said. I had spent a lot of my career as a professional speaker. 
So that well, wasn't a, that wasn't part of the skill set I had to learn. I would put together an outline that would fit either like a one page of a notebook or a five by seven note card or two. I would throw that in the console of my car. And before I left, I would put the outline. And if you look at my outlines in the early shows are really brief on the blog and just not publish it. I would get to work. Now, unlike a typical employee that has to answer to somebody, I could walk in my office and close the door. And nobody would bother me. And in 10 minutes, I would drop the audio file on, stick the, the, the music on it, click render, FTP it to the server, drop it into the, the thing, hit publish, and that was I was done for the day. And so I actually took that wasted time in my car and like 85% of the actual work was done in an over hour long commute where I was going to sit in a car and there wasn't anything else I could do. Um, I could listen to talk radio, which sucked, which is part of why I started the show. Uh, or I could talk to somebody on the phone that I didn't want to talk to, or I could talk to whoever would listen. And and, and that's just a decision you, that you make. What do I do with this time that's sitting here right in front of me now that actually has impact on myself and on others and actually does something for my future? Yeah, that's efficiency, folks. <laughs> um, and that is how, you know, the, the people that are truly productive, you know, find ways to take on even more and, and why Jack is here today and has fit this into his busy schedule. So um, the other thing I, I thought of um, is you are definitely now that I think about it, the first guest that I've had on with absolutely no college experience, if I'm correct. Um, so I've congratulations. Lectured. <laughs> I've lectured okay. uh, for taking a class. Yeah. Uh, I've actually lectured uh, at MIT and Princeton uh, on fiber optics technology, but I've, I've actually never taken a class now. Yeah. So you talked about um, you know enlisting in the military as a young person. I just had one quick question going back to that. Did you, was college the expectation for you and your family, or, or was there ever discussion about it? Or was this sort of kind of like, you're going to kind of be on your own when you get out? I, I'm just interested to know. It, it, this, that's a mixed bag. So first of all, um, my father's straightened his life out big time since then. But my father was an alcoholic. My mother was a drug addict. And I still don't feel like she straightened her life out. Um and at like 15, I was almost almost 16, they got divorced, but neither one of them would leave the house um, because they were always fighting. So I left the house and went to my grandmother's, who was like a complete eccentric religious nut job. So that lasted a week. So I got my first apartment, if you want to call it that. It was basically a converted attic over a row house in, in, in rural Pennsylvania in, you know, what would – locally would be referred to. And I, if this offends anybody, I'm sorry. It's just what was said. It was a white man's ghetto is the, the, the town that I came from is what it was called uh, by by people that live there. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was on my own just about since 16 until I left for the military. And since I joined at 17, my father had to sign for me, even though I was living on my own. And he called me and said, do I do I sign this piece of paper or punch this guy in the face? So there wasn't a whole lot of counseling going on about that time in my life about where I was going to be or you will be on your own at this point. However, I always had a reputation for being a very you know smart kid. And while nobody on, on that side of the family that we were around had ever gone to college, I think it was expected that I would. No one did anything to try to really encourage it. They just figured, well, he'll be the one to go. And I know on my on my mother's side of the family, her father – uh, my grandfather was 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 mi- very mixed emotions when I told him I joined the army. He was a retired chief warrant officer that served through World War II. He did 30 years in the, in the army. So part of him was really proud. But he also felt that I would be, you know, and again, no one ever really pushed it. But I think it's just because they all figured I would. And 
the honest truth is I joined the army because I was living in this really depressed area where I didn't think every, anything was ever going to change. I didn't want to go to college and they gave me an easy answer. You can come later, learn a trade. We'll pay you. We'll get you out of here. You know, you get to serve your country. And, and I, I was always very patriotic and gee, you can join. Did you know you can join for only three years? I, and my thought was I can do anything for three years and maybe by then I'll figure out what I want. And that takes me back to, you know, where we started. I, I, I it took me a long time to figure out what I wanted. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, and but so let me add to that, I'll tell you what, I, I've always known what I've wanted to a degree and it's part of why I've been successful no matter when I did. And I think this is something important for your audience. It doesn't matter if you don't know exactly where you want to be next or in the end. What you what you have to think is what I want is better. And any step that improves my position, if I don't know what else to do, like you can take a step back like I did at one point when I figured some things out. But at the point where you're not sure what to do, whatever advances you to better, that's what to do. Yeah, definitely makes sense. And I think of, you know, my own, you know, upbringing through high, out high school, college definitely was the expectation. And, and I think for a lot of people it is. And they are sort of learning, maybe not now, maybe they'll learn a little later. I've talked about it on my show because I've heard you talk about it, this, uh, this idea of the big lie that people sort of sell college students or high school students going into college saying, you know, you go in and you just work hard, you get good grades, you'll get a degree, and you'll have an awesome kick-ass job when you get out. You know, people will be banging down the door to get to hire you, and I think people are finding out um, it's a little different. <laughs> um, now that we've exposed this lie, what would you say to current college students in order to kind of help them make the best of their college experience? I think the first one is relax a little bit. Uh, c- college students, at least the ones that really do care about their education, often confuse their GPA with their education. As someone that hired a shit ton of people in my life, I never once said, I'd like to see your, ch- your college uh, transcript. And I don't know many people that were ever asked that by a potential employer. Do you have a degree? Yes, we've checked the box. So my advice and on some levels, grades are important and on some levels, relax, right? So if you're trying to get into graduate school or you're going to go to law school or medical school, then there's a, a certain thing there. But if you're coming through with a, a, a typical degree, management, marketing, whatever, and your, your idea is I'm going to complete this and I'm going to go off to school. I'm not saying just like don't worry about it all, but but chill out a little bit if, if you, you do five points less on the exam than your goal was and worry about are you learning are you, are you gaining an education, not a grade point average? Are you gaining skills? And are you gaining the ability through your studies to be able to go out and be productive? One of the things you should, should look at is if I complete this and I don't have a job waiting for me and I had to go do something entrepreneurial, am I learning what I need to be able to do to do that? And, and try to shape things a little bit, at least in that direction. Because even if you're not going to take that path, you are much more marketable to an employer if you can just talk like that, if that makes sense. When, when, when you walk in and you interview with somebody like me, you have to understand that if I'm you know, back when I had employees and you sit down in front of me, I'm going to interview 8, 10, 12, 15 people for this job. I'm probably going to interview four in the next two hours. 
I got 30 minutes to spend with you. And my job is to quickly determine whether or not I want you or you know, what I want to look at you a second time or not. So my real job is to eliminate as many of you as possible in the first round to find a reason not to do business with you, not to want to hire you. But if you come in and you sound like someone that could take on stuff, and even if you can't do everything I need, I have to give you some training, but I can actually, I don't have to worry about training you to be an adult. I don't have to tra- train you to be a self-starter. I don't have to train you to think about the company's bottom line. I don't have to train you to think about the fact that profit is important. Without it, I can't freaking pay you. And you sound like that. Even if you're not right for the position, this is what goes on in my head. What can I do with this person? What position can I create for them? Or... I just don't have any any place for this person right now. But they're going to be good and I want I want to be attached to that. Who do I know that I can refer this person to? But if I can get within 5 minutes to the point where I have three reasons not to hire you, I don't care what your grades are. I don't care what your degrees in. I don't care who you worked for in the past. You're not going to fit the culture and the tempo of the company. And, and, and that's like I, I don't think anybody's being taught that. Now I could be wrong. You, you have people in your audience are going, "Gee, he sounds like you know an economics professor I have or something." I don't know, but I don't think that our young people are being taught to think this way. And the the, the key to understanding what you're going to do with yourself after school is to understand that you're you, you need to develop sales skills. And, and that doesn't mean you're going to go sell stuff, but you're always going to have to sell yourself, and you're always going to have to sell your ideas. And if you can do that and you're applying for a job that requires a bachelor's or a master's and you have that and it's straight D's, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. They're checking a box. And I, I do – I don't want to put down the college system too greatly given your audience mm-hmm. and giving that they're primarily students because there's some great knowledge that can be obtained and some great opportunities that can be obtained through, through, through going to college. But to put it in perspective to how – undervalued a degree can be if you don't have the acumen and the vernacular and the tenacity to go along with it when you go out and talk to professionals that will be hiring you. I spoke to a gentleman one time at a Chamber of Commerce event, and we served on this thing called the Technology Business Council together. And I said, you know, we have a recruiting firm. Do you guys need to hire right now? He goes, yeah, but it's pretty, you know, easy to find what we're looking for. We're not really looking for high expense. So I said, well, what do you need? Maybe we can do something for you anyway. So he starts laying out and he goes, and he gets done with it. I'm realizing this is like a CSR. This is like a customer service rep. And uh, he says, and we want him to have a bachelor's. Go, what, 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 Tom, what the heck do you need somebody to have a, a BA for this for? And he said, well, there's so many people that have it right now. I might as well get it. Yeah. <laughs> and so you can go get a job with your degree making 15 bucks an hour that you could have got without a degree just because the guy wants to check a box or you can go out and leverage the fact that you have a degree because my my story shouldn't be just because Jack did all the stuff he did without a degree. Uh, that's the path I should take. It should be, gee, if he can do that without a degree, what could I do with one if I if I, if I follow that type of – not necessarily the model or the path but the mindset – because you can't follow somebody else's path. That's the very definition of making yourself, you know, miserable, right? But you can follow the mindset, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. And um, I, I can appreciate, you know, what you have to say about specifically this idea, you know, the piece of advice that you started with in the beginning is like, it's more than just the grades. And, and I'm an, a college instructor, so I, I see the other side of it from there. And, and I understand they're paying lots of money, and, and the grade is ultimately what they're, you know, 
there for or invested in to some degree. But I talk a lot about some of the other things that I, the part that I love about being an instructor is more the other things, like the things that people, students come to me outside of class, you know, want a research opportunity or want advice on, you know, their first job in the field, you know, working with people with mental illness. And, you know, it's building that network, I think, that really can benefit people beyond the grades and the ability to develop possible mentors. So I want to ask you a question about mentorship, because that's something we talk a lot about on the show. Uh, I wanted to know what you could say about the value of mentors and mentorship that's had in your life, both with people you may have known personally, as well as mentors you maybe didn't know. Because I kind of considered you a mentor, and I didn't know you until today. So I know there's people like that. I've heard you talk about them on your show for you. Yeah, I mean, my, my biggest mentors really haven't been mentors in business. They've been mentors in, in, in life and thinking. I, I'd say one of the greatest mentors that I have, I've only met a, a handful of times. And we, we do kind of work together now because he's a, a frequent uh, voice on my show. But his name's Jeff Lawton, and he's in, in the world of permaculture, which is, to keep it briefer here, completely natural ways to produce self-sustaining systems that grow food and support humanity. Okay, that's a very specific and fairly accurate definition. And, you know, I, I grew up and I, I mentioned kind of like the crappy part of my childhood, but there was good stuff too. I had a grandfather that taught me how to garden also. I've always been kind of into self-sufficiency and, and what have you. And when I discovered permaculture, it was amazing. And I, 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 I grabbed onto all of this gentleman's teaching and it was so radically different from what I knew that I developed an affinity for what he was teaching and it, it radically transformed my way of viewing my life. It, it made my podcast more successful because I started managing my podcast with what we'd call a permaculture lens, uh, following all of these principles and things and giving back. And so you can certainly have what you would call a remote mentor and, and even a mentor that doesn't um, that doesn't know that you're their mentor. And, and I would say with that, one thing you should be very careful of, and it's it's what I've said to people that have said what you've said to me. Don't assign me too much power if I'm your mentor and don't assign your remote mentor too much power. Don't see them as ideal. ideal. Don't see them as perfect. Don't have a hero complex for them because sooner or later um, they're going to do something you're going to find radically offensive or obnoxious or <laughs> say something you, you, you I can't believe they think this way. Uh, I don't think that was ever a problem for me because uh, one of my my challenges is if I was a, if I was, you know, if I'd been born 20 years later, I would have been absolutely diagnosed with both ADD and Asperger's. Um, so I have a, a, a struggle my entire life with empathy. So I don't get my feelings hurt. That's why I hurt other people's feelings. So that was a struggle for me. But I've seen it with members of my audience, like emailing me and being very hurt, being very angry with me because I've been listening to you for four years and you said this and this hurts. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. I don't even know who you are. I've never heard. I know that that relationship's been going on on your side with listening to me for these years, but I don't know you. I'm, I don't have an obligation not to upset you. So I, I think one of the, and I think this is true with, with mentors that are more traditional as well. When, when you are involved in a relationship with another person that, that's a mentor to you, you have to understand that it's it's kind of a Bruce Lee, Jeet Kune Do type thing. You take from that mentorship, as, and I don't mean a taking relationship where you're, you're, you're like an energy vampire. I mean just as far as they teach you everything and you take the pieces that fit for you and you put them together. And you put them together and create something of your own. 
And when you're when you're a when you're a good teacher, when you're a good mentor, you find your students doing things that you would have not specifically advised them to do, but yet they're dramatically successful. And the reason you wouldn't have advised it is you don't have the acumen for it or you don't have the passion for it. Or you don't have the desire for it. But they took your thinking and your methodology and they applied it to the things that they had acumen and, and passion for. There's a lot of things people do that are very profitable as far as business that I'm smart enough to do them, but they bore the shit out of me. Hence, I'm not going to do it. So if you ask me, do you think it's a good idea? But that's a terrible idea because you're going to be bored as shit. But maybe you're not. And I don't know that. So when, when you have someone in, in a mentor relationship, you have to look at it as – is like any other knowledge source. And you you almost need to separate the friendship from the mentorship so that there's not a internal conflict that causes tension and pain, right? So if if, if I'm your mentor and you say, well, I, I need some advice on my business and I give you advice, I shouldn't be pissed off that you didn't do it and you shouldn't be pissed off because it's not what you wanted to hear. Because as my friend, if you said, who do you think is going to win the Super Bowl? And I said the Patriots, and you think it's going to be the Falcons. You don't get pissed off, and you don't get bent, and you don't get upset, right? And if you say, who should I bet on? And I say the Pats, and you say, okay, and then you go bet on the Falcons and lose your ass. I don't get mad at you, <laughs> right? I don't like, you dummy. You should. I'm not going to ever give you advice again. You're like, you know, Or if you ask me what color car to buy, and I say red, and you buy black, I'm not going to get pissed, and you're not going to get pissed. Or if you buy the red car and I say, the black look better, you're not angry with me. But yet in these in these mentorship relationships, sometimes there's a tension and an anger, and it can go both ways. Like you came to me as a mentor and I told you what to do and you didn't do it. What I always say, and I because it leaves the, the the opening for the person I'm counseling to, to still make their own decision, is I'll say, what, do you hate money? <laughs> is that why you've done this? Because you hate money? And, and I hope that they don't get too upset about it, but at least it makes them think. And when they can come back and go, no, and I, this is why I did that, I, great, then you're you're three steps ahead of me. So I don't know if that's really an answer, but it's kind of where I, I, I came off from it. Yeah, no, definitely. I appreciate the the perspective in saying it's like, you know, they're just people too. They're giving you a perspective and you may value, weigh it a little more heavily than somebody else that you don't consider a mentor. But in the end, it's just one, one person's opinion, you know, and, and you should consider that, you know, and not just, you know, ascribe it to be what, what, what it is, you know? You know, and I have to add this to it. I'd say the best mentorship experiences I've had, either being the, the mentored or the mentor, ha- have never been planned. Um, I've actually never gone to somebody and said, will you be my mentor? I've had people come to me and ask me that. And, and I don't know if it's just me and I don't know if it doesn't bother. To me, it's kind of discomforting because I feel like I have an obligation to you under that. And maybe you're assigning me too much value. The best mentorships, I think, like the best relationships, are not contrived. They just occur. And yep. if you if you approach life with the right mental attitude, which is, to me anyway, you are a sponge. Your, your entire purpose is to learn everything you can to educate and entertain yourself through life. Then almost every human being that you meet is a mentor in some way. Because they know something you don't. I have friends that we just hang out and we learn shit from each other all the time. And in the summation of my knowledge, if I were to go back and credit, well, how do you know all this stuff? The list would be a mile long of people that have contributed to that one way or another. Yeah. And I think we've gotten into a, a point in society where we're trying to formalize everything. You know, just be at peace sometimes. No, it's something I've talked about, too, and I've given that exact advice. Like, please don't go up to somebody and be like, will you be my mentor? It's just <laughs> mentors don't like that. <laughs> Especially um, if I don't know you, right? Yeah. I just met you, right? It's like, you yeah. know, it, it's almost like you wake up one day and realize, hey, this, I'm mentoring this kid. 
you know, or, or this guy's mentoring me, mm-hmm. exactly. you know? Yeah. All right. Let's get into your wheelhouse for a little bit. Um, so let's talk about entrepreneurship. Um, I, I credit you as being a big reason why I've developed a passion for entrepreneurship. And it's something I talked about. I talk about often as something college students should think about. I think sometimes when they haven't thought about it, they see it as like e- either or, you know, oh, I'll either go to school or I'll be an entrepreneur. Um, I wondered what is this about entrepreneurship that drives you, not only in your various endeavors over the years you've talked about, but being also able to teach and encourage other people to build their own businesses? It's it's a lot of things. One, it's it's a financial reality. So I graduated from a fairly large high school class because they had actually closed two other high schools and crammed us all together. Um, so there was about 400 people in my graduating high school uh, class. I know for some that's not big at all, but for rural Pennsylvania, it's huge. And, and I have to say, have, from having kept up with people, best I can tell, um, financially, I'm doing better than every single member of my graduating class that went to college. And it's because of entrepreneurship, except for one. And she's like a drop dead gorgeous, like cover, you know, cover girl model that's an entrepreneur. Right. So, and even though she went to college and I'm sure that there's things from, you know, I think she took business administration or something, or, uh, I think she actually pursued her MBA. So there's probably a lot with, you know, writing proposals and, and getting venture capital all that helped her do what she did. So I'm not putting it down. I'm just saying either way, the path toward like complete financial independence for most people is entrepreneurship. Even people that you see a lot of times that are like self-made millionaires that keep a job for most of their life. They, they was, they were doing something on the side, like real estate investing or something. So there's 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 a financial reality and a financial freedom there that's just monetary, um, but there's just the whole world's different. The, the the rules change. You get a job, you go to work, you make money, you pay tax, and and, and you keep what's left. I run a business. I make money, spend as much of it as I can, and I pay tax on what's left. And that's the reality. And you can do whatever you want to try to tax the rich, but you're not going to change that rule because that's a business rule, right? So there's there's there, there's a, a a complete different way that you see the world as an entrepreneur. The the employee thinks, gee, I hope I can get this week off next month so I can go on vacation with my family. The entrepreneur says, how will I structure things so I can take that week off and come back and my business will be better than when I left? There's no option for that as as an employee. The entrepreneur also is able to say, I've created jobs. And that's an incredibly powerful feeling. You know, I don't want employees anymore, but there's companies that I helped found that still are employing people to this day. And, And that means that food's being put on tables because of actions that I took and sacrifices that I've made. That's see, I think one of the big problems we have from especially the generation of young people in college today is they're being taught to demonize the entrepreneur, the, the, the people that are wealthy, the people that are successful, et cetera, that they're the problem. Well, when you go to when you go to lunch and there's one guy sitting there, that's a successful entrepreneur who's independently wealthy, who picks up the frickin check? Right. You know, I mean, serious, I'm not putting anybody down, but that's who always picks up the check, who writes the big check to the to, you know, don't. This is not the, my company. So put the Red Cross or or much better, well spent to the Salvation Army, the, the poor guy or the rich guy. You become so much more giving when you realize that if I feel like I need more to be able to do this, well, I'll just go figure out a way to, to create more. Instead of seeing money as this 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 like sand you're trying to hold in your fists, 
And no matter how tight you grab it, the sand just rolls out of it because you become at peace with the way that money works and the way that economics work and the way that money's made. You're able to hold on to that sand really loosely and you can hold a lot of it. And you don't care about what falls through because there's there's plenty left over to do good things with. I mean, and I mean, I could go on all day. I, I mean, know you could. <laughs> there's, there's just nothing in the world better than assigning yourself responsibility for your life, which is what entrepreneurship really is. Like I got up this morning at like seven, which is a pretty typical time for me. And said, so, you know what? I'm tired today. I'm going to sleep till 730. And I checked with my boss and he said it was okay. <laughs> right. Um, I, I took a trip this, this last fall with my wife and we were in, uh, in Gatlinburg, Tennessee for 10 days. And, and I really didn't worry about my business because sift, even though I'm a one-man show now, I have systems in place and protocols in place to take care of things while I'm gone. When my son was growing up, because I always had something going on of my own, I was always able to, even when I was an employee, even if I didn't have the vacation time, say, you know what? Christmas Eve until New Year's Day, I'm not working. I'm just That's just the time of the year. It's a reboot for me. All of these things exist because you take a responsibility for yourself and you – this is another thing that I think like we should be teaching young people this not so that they, they, they think entrepreneurs are great, so that they want to be one, OK? That when you, when, you, when you kind of set things up this way, you have this ability to do things for others in a way that you, you really can't imagine until it's there. Um, I, I don't really know how to explain it any other way except that when, when you are able to put something in place, get it up and running, and maybe if you even don't want employees anymore, there's there's literally hundreds of people in business today that in one way or another, either they're inspired or helped to get in there. And you know those people are out there replicating that because employees don't really create more employees. And, and I'm not put it down, but what I mean by that is you do your job, you get paid, you go home. Right. You might even run a department with a lot of people in it. You have employees under you, but you don't create they, that doesn't inspire someone to go out. I want to be like Bill. I want to be like Tammy. I want to be like be like Samantha. I want to go out and do that, too. That's just like that's it's the system that's there. When people see you successfully engage in entrepreneurial activities, what they say to themselves, especially if you're, you're real about it, and you don't try to make yourself sound better than you are. Well, sh well, shit, if this 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 idiot duck farmer from Texas can do all this shit. I can do that shit too. Right. And then they want to go do it. And, and that's like the most rewarding thing you get when somebody comes to you and says, because of you, I started this business and now my family and I are, are independent from employment. There, there's, there's no paycheck that ever does that for you. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's, yeah, I think that's a perfect answer. And sometimes I think entrepreneurship might be a little, a little scary for, for college students. And in that case, I kind of, what I try to advocate is this idea of like building your brand. And sometimes I have a hard time describing that if somebody is not interested in starting their own business, what that actually means. So I wondered if I, you could talk a little bit about what brand building means to you and why it might be especially important for a college student to start building their brand earlier in life rather than later. Yeah. I mean, even if you want to be an entrepreneur, personal brand is everything. So, you know, the next time, and guys, trust me, if Facebook existed back in the day, the reputation of Jack Spearco would be a lot worse. I was a soldier. I, I, I stood in the back of a pickup truck with a bottle of Jack Daniels doing 110 miles an hour, holding onto a row bar, going across the, uh, the Bridge of America's over the Panama Canal. True story. And that's mild. But 
think about posting that stuff to Facebook and Twitter and stuff like that. Don't do that. It'll follow you for the rest of your life. And even when you delete it, it never really goes away. Um, so that's part of like, you know, a little bit of branding control. Um, but be out there, be active and engaged and, and, and doing things that because what, you, what I don't think people realize is you can go out and, and give advice and learn and engage in conversations of social media other than you're stupid because you're a Democrat or you're stupid because you're a Republican. You can do other things and you can actually develop a following without even realizing it. You know, you can have 500 people that follow you because their friend was a friend of yours and they clicked on a link or 500 people that follow you because they value what you have to say. And if you're doing that alone, your name starts to have some value. It starts to have some some brand. And when you say, well, I'm out of school now and I'm ready to go look for something, now you actually have a network. You know, when I was a kid, you know, and I consider people in their 20s a kid, right? When I was a kid, we didn't have – you couldn't network that way. You know, you went to Chamber of Commerce meetings. You knew everybody in town or whatever. That was how you networked. Where now we have this incredible opportunity. So I'd say build a brand. I'd say it, it, it's it's my opinion that every person out there that, that actually cares about their future should set up a blog and start blogging. And blog about something you like. It doesn't have to be business oriented, but but start building up content, develop that skill. It, it's it's basically we, we shouldn't even use the word blog anymore. We, it just it's just a website that's that's time based, right? And 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 blog about your areas of study your, that you like, right? Don't not the stuff you hate or the interests that you have or the things that you want to do. Chronicle and catalog, take videos, do audio recording, learn the skills of media. And put yourself out there in some way. Do a podcast. You know, you don't have to be a crazy maniac like me. And, and I think I published episode 1940 today. Um, you, you could do one a week or or, or something uh, just to learn that ability to produce to produce audio content. Understand that the absolute most powerful form of marketing still to this day is audio. Because it is the one form of marketing that can be absorbed while engaged in other activities. And what I mean by that is today we think, well, if I want to get a brand or a product sold or something, the biggest thing I have to do is get somebody willing to exchange their money with me. And that's that's wrong. That's the second most important thing. The first most important thing is you have to get them to exchange their time with you. OK, and, and that's it's far more jealously guarded than money, especially by people that have money. Right. If, if you have enough money to buy pretty much whatever you want without being, you know, Maseratis or whatever, but just basically the average successful person that you want as a customer, they, if they want something for 50 bucks, they buy it. They might not be able to buy everything they want for 50 bucks, but whenever, when they want something here or there, they just buy it. What you need from them, what they're jealously guarding because we live in an interconnected world and they've got a family and they've got kids and they've got a job and they've got a career and they've got sports that they follow or whatever it is they follow is their time. It's their time. So, one of the reasons I believe my podcast is, is so successful is I made a decision to go audio, partly because I have a, a voice and a face that's perfect for radio. <laughs> but, but, but the other reason was I understood that there's people in their little metal coffins, most people call them cars, going to and from work every day, trapped in there, and they can drive and listen to me. They can't drive and read a book. They, can't, they shouldn't drive and watch a video. right? They can't drive and read copy. But they can work out and listen to you. They can drive and listen to you. They can garden and listen to you. They can sit on the bank fishing with their downtime and listen to you. 
So when, if, if you were going to master one form of communication to brand yourself in a specific niche that you were going to discuss, I would say to do it with audio. Because then you can have that engagement with people. There's probably people and they're, they're listening to your show right now, you and me talk. And you know what they're saying? Holy crap, he's watching me. <laughs> right? Because they're walking the campus or they're, you know, they're in their car and they're going home to see their parents or whatever. And, and, and they're sitting there using this downtime to enrich their mind. Well, if, if there is another form of marketing that does that, fine. I haven't seen it yet. And I've been doing this a while. Yeah. Awesome. All right, I'm going to hit you with an, a fun one now. Um, so let's go back to your early 20s. You know, you got out of the Army, and you're not really sure what you're doing. But let's say you have all of the knowledge that you have now, <laughs> back then. Oh, God. What would you do with that knowledge in terms of educating yourself, in terms of, you know, learning what you wanted to do? Well, if I had all that knowledge, I would be doing exactly what I'm doing now. I would just have been doing it for a lot longer, and uh, I would have been far more successful with it. Um, but part of the thing is the tools, and I think this is part of it. Like I always thought of myself as a person born like a couple generations too late. That I, I was because you know, I'm a hunter, I'm a fisherman, and, and have been born back in the time when you could just be a mountain man or something would have been great. You know, you had that freedom and you could just roam and and go do that. But but the reality is, uh, as I found my passion was actually teaching, I was almost born a generation too early. Because you can't do what I'm doing now in 1985. It, it wasn't possible. You had the FCC to deal with. You had to go beg some radio station to let you let you have a job. You had to compete with, you know, there's thousands of people wanting to do it and there's a dozen spots available and some of them suck because who listens to their radio other than moon bats at, you know, like 3 a.m. and turns into coast to coast. So I wouldn't actually want to go back and be 24 and know what I know now because I'd have to wait to use it. I would love to be 24 right now. If that makes sense. Yeah. And what I want your audience to understand is that's the incredible freaking opportunity that you have. All of this bullshit about how hard it is now is being said by people, most of whom never held a real job and certainly never signed the front side of a paycheck. They have no idea how golden rich the opportunities are right now to learn, to educate, to put yourself out there. If if I went back to then – I'd use the knowledge I have to be developing some of the technologies so that I could profit from them, I guess, you know. Um, you know, it makes me think of um, a story I've told a lot of times about Mark Cuban. Uh, Mark Cuban, of course, very famous guy, owner of the Dallas Mavericks, made $4 billion selling broadcast to Yahoo. He's uh, done all kinds of amazing technology businesses, you know, 80% of which are successful and 20% of which fail, which is a pretty good average, honestly. But – one of the things he's become famous for through Shark Tank is telling entrepreneurs not to follow their passion. And all I can think is, you lying sack of crap. Because you wouldn't have a dime to your name if you didn't follow your passion. Mark Cuban was driving around in his car one day, right when this newfangled internet thing was taken off, when, when AOL was spamming our mailboxes with, D, with CDs, right, to install on our new computers that we just got from the home shopping network or whatever. And he was thinking, I love basketball, and I wish I could listen to Indiana play basketball on the radio. And he thought, I wonder if you can send an audio signal over that internet thing. 
And that was the genesis of AudioNet that became broadcast that made him a freaking billionaire. He may have used a, like, I think his message is mixed and misunderstood. His passion was basketball that led him to looking for a solution. And then his passion became Im- implementing that solution at, at a much broader level. And, and and so I don't think it really matters how old you are, where you're at, or what you know. The, the, the key is developing what – you know, figuring out what it is that you love. Figuring out what it is you love and pursuing the shit out of it. And then look around and use all the tools that are available to you today. Because the truth is I would have figured something out if I would have known what my passion was. See, part of me always knew what my passion is, and it is teaching. And I looked at my high school teachers, even the good ones, and thought – this guy went to college for four years. You know, and back then he probably was making like $28,000, $26,000. I, I don't want to make that kind of money. You know, I, I, want, I, want to be, I want to be more successful than my family. I don't want to live like this forever. I want something more. So that led me away from teaching. And the platforms we have today made my teaching scalable to a much broader numbers. And then – once you have enough people paying attention to what you're doing and you're actually doing something good that's helping them, then it's very easy to, to, to figure out a financial model that serves you and them. And, and then you've got it made. I know that doesn't actually answer the question, but it's it's more accurate to, to the spirit of it, I think. Yeah, for sure. Wow. This has been great. And uh, I, I, you know, we've gone a, quite a while. I want to... Um Ask you like one more question, real quick, uh, just about goal setting. You know, you've you've been involved in a lot of different ventures, and you you have uh, you know number of things going on in your life. How do you keep yourself sort of focused when you decide you know you have a goal, like, and not let it get to the wayside? Do you have any any tips you can share about you know goal achievement? I guess more than the goal setting. Yeah, I'm glad you shifted that because I'm yeah. terrible at goal setting. I am. Like I said, uh, it, 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 20 years later, and I would have been a kid, been a kid with Asperger's and ADD, or probably ADHD, I guess. Um, so I am not task-oriented as far as the individual tasks. What I have to do is I have to develop for myself that end goal. And then the tasks just have to get done. Now, as I do lay out the tasks, I have a very – critical rule for people like me, eccentric people like me, to be able to get to that goal. And that is all of the stuff you don't want to do. All like there'll be if there's like 20 steps, there's gonna be like five of them like, I really want to do that. And there's gonna be like 10 of them like, yeah, well I'll do it. And there's gonna be like five like I really don't freaking I'll put that to last. You do those first. You get them out of the way. Then you do the things. Now, sometimes there's something that's temporal that has to be done in a certain sequence, but there's these little subsets in it. And whatever piece that you're really dreading, go do it and get it done. Because then all you have to do is it gets better. right? So always knock out the stuff you don't want to do. When I was in sales, the thing I hated to do, of course, cold calling. Cold calling sucks. It, it, it's, it's talking to 30 people that tell, you're an, tell you you're an asshole that don't even know you to get to one that will give you the time of day. right? So like I would always – First thing in the morning, do all my cold calls. I, I hit it, and that way they're knocked out for the day, and I could do account service and things like that that I actually enjoyed more. So, so that's one thing. But then the other thing I've hit on already, you've got to find something you're passionate about that you really believe in. 
Now, that has to be, to be fair, like to Mark Cuban, who I just kind of picked on a bit, that also has to meet with some sort of like the rules of business and market demand and things like that. There has to be, if it's going to be for profit, it has to be, there has to be a, a profitable model to it. And you have to be willing to not let your passion override your common sense. And what I mean by that is you can keep the end goal in mind, but if the way you thought you were going to get there looks like a disaster, shift gears and go somewhere else. But if you if you believe in what you're doing enough, then you'll get up at 3.30 in the morning and put together an outline when you don't have to. Because I was making great money. It wasn't about money at that point. It was about freedom. So if you find something that that you would give your all for, and so many people think there's something like that. Because they say, oh, my dream is this. If that was really your dream, if you'd really – grabbed onto that as being your dream, if you really believed in the shit you're saying, you'd be doing it. Now, you might not be all the way to it yet, but you'd be pursuing it. You wouldn't be over here doing something else that you you think is a box you have to check before you get there. You, you, you'd be on your way in some way toward that. And to be fair, because I know we got some young folks listening here, when I was 21, 22, 23 years old, even though I was already starting to head down a path that was the right direction, I didn't know it. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I had buried that idea of teaching long ago because there was no money in it. But back to what I said earlier, what I did was what will make my life, and as I became a father and a husband and my family's life better tomorrow than it is today. If I have to leave this company and go work for that company, do the same thing I hate, but I can put $20,000 more into the family a year, I'll go do that. You know, I'll go do that because I'm not doing uh, – why am I going to sit here and, and, and be miserable for less, right? And, and then constantly, eventually, you find your path to what you're looking for. You can't be afraid. You have to be fearless in life. You really do. And we have done so many things by trying to make the life easier for, for this younger generation that's made them fearful. We've tried to take away all their discomforts, and it, it, it's just nonsensical. It makes, I can't think of this, 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 I think it was a psychologist actually that was telling a story about lobsters. And he said that, you know, if, 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 if lobsters acted like humans, they would never grow. And, and what he meant by that was like, so a lobster grows to a certain point, it becomes very uncomfortable because it outgrows its shell. And then it has to split its shell off and it becomes very vulnerable and wait for that next shell to harden up. But if, if humans, the way we act today, when we get uncomfortable, we'll take a pill. Right. We'll, we'll find some way to make ourselves feel comfortable without actually dealing with the situation. And, and, and to get what you want out of life, you have to realize you're going to be freaking uncomfortable. You're going to fail. It's OK. It doesn't fucking matter. It doesn't fucking matter if you fail. If you can still fog a mirror, if you're not in a wheelchair because you did something stupid, if you didn't kill somebody in a car wreck, if you got an F on a paper, it doesn't fucking matter. If you start a company and it fails, it doesn't fucking matter. What matters is that you get back up and you keep doing it until you figure it out. That's the only way you're going to get what you really want in life. No one's going to give it to you. And we've, we've screwed up so bad making people feel like they're entitled to anything. You're not entitled to shit. You're entitled to opportunity. It's up to you to capitalize on it. Yep. Preach, brother. <laughs> That's a great way to end. Um, thank you uh, so much. I, I share so much of your same, you know, opinion about passion, and I talk about it a lot on the show. I, I, I talk about it as passion for curiosity, because I feel like 
follow your passion is just too cliche. And I say, you know, it may be your passion, but you're not sure. So go and check it out. And then you might find something along the way that you find and go over there, you know, and just kind of let things happen as they may. And that sounds like what you've sort of articulated perfectly. Yeah, I'm very compartmentalized. Yeah. Things I've had. Like you have this one, you, you, you chest a hundred things. Like you get really, in, like I'll get really interested in something and, and I'll be, I'll literally become at least a speaking expert on it in a week. I'll, I'll just dissect everything out of it, but then like, okay, that's not really as fun as I thought it was, <laughs> but you got to find that over. So then the overriding thing is to teach, right? So you got to find out what that is for you, but yeah, go learn everything. Yeah. You know, if you, you think like I got to change my oil and it's going to cost money and I don't have money because dad didn't send any of this. Go on YouTube, how to change oil in a whatever kind of car you have. There's going to be some person on there. that will show you how to do it. Learn how to do it once. Just, just for the hell of it. You know, you know what? Don't ever want to do that. Again. I was a mechanic in the army. I don't touch a wrench now unless I have to, right? It's not that I don't know how. I don't want to do it anymore. But learn. Learn everything you can. Yeah. And if people are interested in learning more about you, segue, uh, <laughs> how could they do that? Uh, you can go to the survivalpodcast.com and uh, all of my podcasts are published there. If you search Stitcher Radio or iTunes or Google Play or most podcast platforms that are out there that anybody would use uh, for survival podcasts, you'll find me um, and, you know, just start listening. And uh, for some people, I think what could be really helpful is it's a blog, right? And most most folks know how a blog works today, but there's it's all chronological and you can look on the side and see the archives and, and go back to episode one and listen to episode one. It sucks. It sucks. But you know what it does? It lays out what the show's going to be. It's, it's 20 minutes of static and road noise, but it lays out exactly what the show's going to be. And I think that it's important for people not to see the polished version of what you create when you've got it to something that's really awesome, but for them to see the, 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 the lump of crappy coal you started with. And so, you know, I, I'd encourage you not just to, you know, start listening to the new shows, but to go back and listen to some of the early ones and also to like decide what you really want to know. Cause we don't generally talk about this stuff all the time. So you're not going to get a whole bunch of this. It's, it's a very, like a variety show. So if there's something you want to know about like self-sufficiency, self-reliance, uh, gardening, uh, business, lifestyle design, you know, there's a search box, search for that and just find and take, take the stuff from what I do that you actually want to, to know more about. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you so much, Jack, for coming on the show today. Really appreciate it. I appreciate you having me on. All right. Thanks. Okay. Welcome back. And I, I really hope you enjoyed that. It was a, kind of, a, again, a very different perspective than you probably are used to hearing on the show. And, um, you know, that's what I'm trying to bring. You know, I think if I keep you know, hammering the same point from the same perspective, you know, it gets lost on people that don't sort of relate to that perspective. So I'm going to try and bring, you know, other perspectives in as it relates to college student success, uh, setting and achieving goals, you know, mentorship, networking, entrepreneurship, all the stuff we talked about today. So I hope you enjoyed that. And uh, if you're interested, I hope you check out his podcast. Um, so Homework exercise, I struggled with this one for a while because uh, nothing really st stood out to me in terms of uh, something you could do for this week that's sort of related to the stuff we've talked about that wasn't, you know, very different than some of the other things I've recommended in the past. So my, this is kind of a sort of a general one, but for this week, um, 
my suggestion for a home exercise is to do the thing that you're most scared of doing right now related to your goal. So there's some part that either you're, you're scared to do or you just don't want to do for whatever reason. You don't like it. Um, you don't think you're very good at it. Um, you don't think you're, you think if you could try it, it's going to mess up or you might be embarrassed. Um, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of potential, you know, that could go wrong there, I guess, in taking a risk. Um, but my suggestion is, is to try that, try and do that one thing that's, you know, been the thing that you're like, ugh, I'll get to that eventually. You know, we're in week four now of the semester. Um, so in the next week, you know, I kind of chunk the semester into thirds. We'll sort of maybe check in on our goal a little bit. Um, but no, like, you know, we're four weeks down. We got 11 to go. Uh, it's time to get going on that goal. So, you know, take the, take a big step this week. Um, I feel like I took a big step with this podcast in the last couple of weeks, and especially this week with having Jack on. So, um, you know, think about the different steps that are involved. And if there's a logical, you know, one of those next few steps, it's a little challenging for you that you're worried about it, that you've been like thinking about, maybe keeps you up a little bit at night, not a lot, just a little. It's like, oh, I don't want to do that part. But Derek's telling me, you know, it'll help. Yeah, you know, you can do it. Um, I'm going to try and make make some big steps this week on my goal as well. So if so, I'll be reporting on them next week. Um, so with that, um, I'm going to take you out today with little Pink Floyd. Um, I know Jack was, is a fan of Floyd, and uh, so that's partially the reason. But uh, it's going to be a little different take. Uh, this is uh, one of my favorite bands, uh, Band Mo, covering Pink Floyd. So just a little different spin. Hope you enjoy it. Hope you guys have a great week. Keep on killing it with your goals, and you can count on me to be back here next week. Uh, take care, guys. Have a wonderful week.
Deus é 